and extremely more welcome to the June Editor's Choice podcast. I'm Amy Ross Russell, I'm a trainee in Southampton, and it's a pleasure to be discussing the latest Editor's Choice review from the June edition of Practical Neurology uh, in my first all-female podcast. A reminder to listeners, this isn't the only PN podcast, there's also the Editor's Highlights, which we publish alternating months with this one. It's a wonderful way to get a neurological polypill or, or a rapid infusion of the journal uh, as Phil Smith and Geraint Fuller take you on a, a gentle tour of the latest edition. I'm also really excited to announce we've recently released our first case-based podcast. This has been uh, developed and is delivered by Professor Martin Turner, who many will know from chairing the Oxford Grand Round. It's a bit different to the other podcasts. Martin talks through a couple of recently published case reports with current neurology trainees and breaks these down to examine the presentations, explore our understanding of the conditions. It's a real testament to the joy of clinical neurology and the diagnostic process which attracted so many of us to neurology uh, and it's well worth a listen. We're also really keen to hear what you think of all of these podcasts uh, and where we might improve them. So please do leave us a review if you can. Enough preamble, let's crack on with today's topic, which is multiple systems atrophy. This review comes from a team at Queen Square and it's beautifully put together to deliver a practical up-to-date guide to diagnosing MSA according to the latest diagnostic criteria and walking us through how we manage all aspects of care of our patients with MSA. Here to discuss the paper are Dr. Yi Yang Go and Dr. Virika Chelban. Yen is a neurology trainee in London. Uh, she's a current ABN and MSA Trust Clinical Research Fellow. She's in her second year of a PhD studying biomarkers of prognosis in MSA. Uh, Dr. Chelban is an academic clinical fellow at the UCL Queen Square Institute of Neurology and the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. Uh, she has a clinical and research interest in understanding molecular basis of movement disorders, particularly MSA, and the translation of this research into clinical practice. Thank you both very much for coming and joining me. Thank you very much for having us. Yen, I'd like to start with you just to set the scene. So what is MSA? Is it common? And why does it matter that we identify and diagnose it? Okay, so MSA is a neurodegenerative disease, as most people will know. It's a synucleinopathy that affects the oligodendrocytes in the brain. It affects multiple systems, hence the name multiple system atrophy, um, and causes Parkinsonism, cerebellar dysfunction and autonomic dysfunction. It's, it's not a common disease, so it's quite a rare disease. Its prevalence is sort of between two to five cases per 100,000 people. And to put that in context, comparing it to Parkinson's, Parkinson's is about 180 per 100,000, so 36 times more common. And to kind of think about it from, say, the perspective of our GP colleagues, so in the UK, an average UK GP practice has about 9,000 patients, but in the UK in total, we estimate there are probably about 3,000 patients with MSA. So in reality, the, most, the majority of GP practices won't have a patient with MSA on their books at any one, time, any one moment in time. And diagnosis, hmm. why does it matter that we diagnose it? It's really important, I think, for two main reasons. And the first one is for the patient and prognostication. Now, this is really important for some patients because MSA can often be mistaken for idiopathic Parkinson's disease or a spinocerebellar ataxia, both of which generally have better prognosis and longer survival. 
And understanding that diagnosis will then allow patients to understand the trajectory of their disease and plan their lives accordingly. It also allows them to have access to support from specific, more targeted charities. So, for example, the MCA Trust and to access support that's more personalised to their needs. The second reason, I think, is mainly access to research treatment. So, as I said, MSA is a neurodegenerative disease. Its average survival is between seven to nine years, so relatively quick. And at present, there are several treatment trials on the horizon. Um, well, actually, there are several treatment trials that are either currently running or about to start in MSA. And for these patients, having an, a clear early diagnosis will allow eligible patients to access these trials, which could potentially be life-changing for some of them. That's fantastic. That's a wonderful start, Yen. Thank you. Vera, can we always come back to the importance of history taking and attention to relevant details? What are the key things to focus on when you're considering a diagnosis and what are the clues you're looking for in the history to support that? In clinic, especially in neurology clinic, we are more drawn to the signs uh, that we can see or those that um, we can hear. And these usually tend to be more on the motor signs, um, for example, dystonias, the dysarthrias. But with MSA, it is very important to look for the non-motor symptoms, which usually start before the motor ones, and also to inquire about the night um, and sleep-related symptoms. So things to ask about are related to mobility and do they already use uh, mobility aids at their first consultation? What are the urinary symptoms? And uh, focusing both on storage and voiding symptoms. And also symptoms related to orthostatic hypertension, changes in smell, but also in the mood and effect. And I'll start with this very early in our <laughs> conversation because um, patients very rarely report erectile dysfunction, for example. But this is one of the very first symptoms of MSA and really should be the, us, the doctors, who should raise the question. But a very important detail is the timeline and the symptom evolution. If a patient comes with a history that kind of looks like Parkinson's disease, but is on a fast track or a high-speed train, then probably it should already raise the concern that this could be MSA. A history with early falls, with recurrent falls, with um, speech involvement, severe swallowing changes within the very first three years of the motor onset would support um, an MSA diagnosis. Would be helpful when taking the history to have somebody who can attend with the patient, um, like a caregiver or family member, um, who would give more details around sleep, for example, REM sleep behavior disorders, or periodic leave movement in sleep, who would describe or raise uh, concern about strider, about obstructive sleep apnea, and um, any cognitive changes. Because these are things that are all relevant and that will um, kind of change the direction <laughs> towards an MSA with a patient who 
initially presents with Parkinsonism or cerebral ataxia. Thank you. That's brilliant. And you've you've re- sort of identified a lot of the things that I think we'll come on to talk about with, with management later as well and the importance of asking those questions. Are there key parts of the examination that, that you focus on that you're always sort of meticulous about, about adding in or additional bedside tests that you do in your clinic review as, as part of that initial assessment? Examination is very important in MSA. There is no one test that will give you the diagnosis and a lot of the diagnosis relies on the examination. To start with, one could even start the examination from the corridor, from the waiting room. When patient comes in, one would look at their gate and with MSA, patients can have a wide base gate or a shuffling gate, but frequently they will have a combination of a slightly wide based with a bit of shuffling and often with a stooped posture. They can also have other abnormal postures such as Pisa syndrome with a lateral collis of the trunk. They may have a disproportionate anticollis, contractures um, of the hands and feet. They're all indications towards MSA and not a idiopathic PD, for example. And things like asymmetrical limb dystonia or an alien limb would correlate more to a corticobasal syndrome. So these are all important features of the examination to, to take into account. Then when we move to eye movements, one would examine especially saccades pursuit for the cerebellar signs and the vertical saccades for slowing or gaze restriction which would indicate a supranuclear gaze palsy. Um, and these are important differential diagnoses for MSA. With, with the recent discoveries of canvas-related genes that could mimic MSA C, especially at the very early stages of the condition, it is important to do a head impulse test especially in the MSAC patients, looking for the evidence of peripheral vestibulopathy because this is seen more in canvas and not in MSA. And in terms of Parkinsonism, MSA patients often have symmetrical bradykinesia and rigidity, but this is not always. Tremor um, is present and should be examined at rest, also with outstretched postures and with action. Um, rest tremor or pill rolling uh, tremor is not frequent in MSA. The cerebellar signs, of course, um, with regular usual tests, dysdiadocokinesia, finger nose, heel shin testing, tandem gait, um, they would all suggest cerebellar dysfunction, although they are not specific to MSA. I should also add that all the patients should have a lying and standing blood pressure and the heart rate measured while they're lying and then after they've standed for at least three minutes. These are really the only tests that are needed to fulfill the core clinical criteria at the bedside. That's fantastic. That's brilliant. Yen, you've got a great couple of figures to help with diagnosis. Your, your figure one, which is a, an updated uh, 2022 MDS criteria for, for diagnosis, and then table four as well with the key motor, autonomic and clinical features. 
I wondered if you could just briefly talk us through the structure of diagnosis and the categories. When I think of diagnosis, I sort of think of it as having three different stages. Firstly, you have to suspect a possible diagnosis, and then you make a positive diagnosis using inclusion criteria, and then you finish it off by excluding any known mimics or closely related conditions. So in this situation with MSA suspicion, Viorica has gone through quite a few things in the history and examination when we actually suspect MSA. But to kind of simplify it, I would say just consider it in any patient with any combination of Parkinsonism, cerebellar, autonomic dysfunction. And so once you've already suspected the condition, we go on to the positive diagnostic criteria. Now, when I was putting the table together, one of the things I did think to myself was that unless you're sitting for an exam or involved in MSA research or a movement disorder specialist, I actually don't think anyone would have the motivation or desire to commit this table to memory. But I think there are some key principles, perhaps, of the table to understand. So the first thing is that there are four levels of diagnostic certainty. The first is pathological post-mortem certainty, and that's probably not going to apply to most of our listeners in clinic. And the last three are clinical, and I think this is where it gets a bit more interesting to them. And the three clinical categories are established, probable, and prodromal. And to determine which of these categories your patients are in, the way I think about it is that there are three different things that you need to consider. The first one is clinical, perhaps severity, severity in air quotes, if I may, of symptoms and signs. So for example, with Parkinsonism, is the Parkinsonism responsive to levodopa? Is it just Parkinsonism or is it subtle? Or perhaps if you're looking at the autonomic signs with their blood pressure drops or the orthostatic hypotension, does it drop after three minutes or does it drop after 10 minutes? And how, how much does it drop as well? And similarly with urine retention, if they do have symptoms of urine avoiding difficulties, how much urine are they retaining? Is it more than 100 mils, is it less than 100 mils? So you're looking at categorizing patients clinically based on the severity of those symptoms and signs. Then the next thing you look at is imaging findings. And this is new for the 2022 MDS criteria. The last version from 2008 didn't have imaging. And with imaging findings, it's pretty simple. There's a table in the paper that kind of points in the right direction, but it's does it fit with MSA? The one thing I will point out to our listeners is that in MSAC, cerebellar atrophy itself is not diagnostic. Um, it's not specific for MSAC because it's quite commonly seen in other cerebellar diseases. Now, if you've got middle cerebellar peduncle or pons atrophy, that does count, but not the cerebellum itself. And then you go on to your third section, which is about supporting criteria. And that's sort of looking at certain key features which people have discovered are relatively unique to MSA. They're not particularly sensitive. So if your patients don't have all of them, that doesn't mean they don't have MSA, but they are relatively specific. So these include things like polymyoclonus, um, stridor, but also include uh, slightly more generic things like having pyramidal signs in the forms of extensive planters or relatively rapid deterioration within three years that I know Viorica just um, mentioned earlier on. And then once you've got these three categories together, 
then I would recommend maybe going back to the paper or going back to the consensus criteria to have a look at which category your patient falls in because otherwise there's not much point memorising it's two of this plus one of this and none of this and so on and so forth. Then the last part that I mentioned earlier on is then just tying the diagnosis off by considering exclusions. And we know that there are several diseases that exist that mimic MSA, which very spoke about earlier on, such as Canvas, certain um, and certain genetic diseases such as Friedrich's ataxia or scars. And so the last bit is basically rounding it off by checking they don't have any red flag signs of these conditions. So for example, if they've got fluctuating alertness or any visual hallucinations, then you'd be thinking, could this be DLB rather than MSA? Or if they've got a peripheral neuropathy or a peripheral vestibulopathy, could it be canvas? That's absolutely perfect. Thank you. I'm going to pick up on two particular things that you mentioned uh, in the diagnostic process before we move on to management. And that's how you define neurogenic orthostatic hypertension and the L-DOPA challenge. So how do you diagnose neurogenic orthostatic hypertension? There, there are probably two ways to do it, but the simple one is in clinic. And with neurogenic orthostatic hypertension, essentially what it means is that your blood pressure falls, but the because of the dysfunction to the autonomic system, you don't have a significant compensatory increase in your heart rate. So in clinic, what you can do is you can use the change in heart rate to change in systolic blood pressure ratio after a three-minute end to assess this. And if your ratio is less than 0.5, that means that your heart rate isn't increasing as expected, and that's neurogenic in nature. And I think it's quite important to check your patient's medications as well before this, because if they are on a beta blocker or verapamil or anything that's, more, that's going to be chronotropic, that's going to affect the results that you see. The second way you can do this is in a formal uh, autonomics lab, which I know that most of our listeners probably won't have access to. But there are multiple ways that you can look at this using, you know, Valsalva maneuvers and sort of like heart rate monitoring during tilt tests and things like that. But the simple way in clinic is just by doing that calculation. Fantastic. And the other thing I wanted to pick up on is, is this concept of a proper L-DOPA trial and, and what that means. Yeah, so when I, when I first started, I think we all thought of the L-DOPA trial as the uh, challenge where you give someone a high dose of, you know, soluble dispersible metabar and then check them before and after. But from the consensus diagnostic criteria in 2022, it requires that a patient should be on at least one gram total daily dose of levodopa for at least a month for it to be considered an adequate trial. Now, in practice, in our MSA clinic, we usually ask our patients to stay on the medication for up to three months if they tolerate it, to really give it a proper go. And we also recommend increasing it very slowly. So we get our patients to increase Cinemat every two to three weeks, rather than every week or every three days even. Because MSA patients can often be more affected by the ostatic side effects of levodopa. And then in terms of assessing the outcome, According to the consensus criteria, you can assess the outcome purely based on the patient's own report just by asking them. But if you wanted to be really objective about it, then you would do an UMSAS, which is a standardised examination targeted at MSA patients. And if there's a 30% improvement, that shows a response. Okay, let's move on to some practical management points. And your article's completely bursting with them. 
first of all, Viri, you discuss how to deliver the diagnosis. That's something we often don't focus on, but I think particularly important in, in neurodegenerative conditions. What's your approach and, and how much do you do sort of right at the beginning versus maybe later on? So this is probably the hardest part um, of the work in the MSA clinic to share the diagnosis of MSA with the patient and with the family. My personal approach is to be honest, but at the same time to be considerate because this really is bad news. And it is a difficult diagnosis to receive. And this is more a personal um, approach, but I think it's good to include a combination of empathy, first of all, and give some reassurance that they will be supported by you, your team, and um, there is other support on this journey. And to offer some sort of realistic optimism. And here I would mention existing support from charities like the MSA Trust, who have a wide range of um, services, including MSA specialist nurses, and mentioning things like there is a growing number of disease-modifying drug trials in MSA, that survival is improved by adequate care, just standard of care. But I would start with open-ended questions and try to establish what the patient already knows about the condition. And this is very helpful to kind of get the correct or the right words when communicating the diagnosis. Because these days there is a vast amount of information available and many patients would have already looked up the symptoms. They may have already read some of the details about MSA. Uh, finding out what is their understanding, their knowledge, and what are really their concerns from the start. It is actually very important. And other things to mention is frequently when we say that this could be MSA, we're also asked <laughs> to answer other questions quite quickly after that is, so how long do I have and what will happen to me over time? And when talking about survival, the studies say that the average survival from onset usually is around nine to about nine years. But I would always mention to the patient that there is a large variation. And overall, I would just say there is no simple indicator of prognosis. And this is actually the message that we try to deliver to the patients, that we can't really use studies to tell them specifically what is their survival going to be. And we say that each person is different and that we will support them as needed. And But always try to be honest. We'll tell them what we know and we'll um, tell them that we will be there to address any issues on the way. And when delivering the diagnosis, I try to always mention the local charities, for example, the MSA Trust in the UK, who are very useful sources of information for patients. They have a lot of written information, leaflets. They have um, local services available 
such as specialist nurses, social welfare, financial support that is specific to the MSA needs. And this is very helpful to, to the patients and to the families. We are fortunate that we have a MSA specialist nurse in our clinic and they usually come with written information that patient can take with them home and um, have contact details there. And I'm sure um, the MSA Trust would be very happy to send this information to any neurologist who would like to have them in clinic. So I'd definitely recommend to approach them if this is something you would like to, to have when delivering the MSA diagnosis. Thank you. That's really, really helpful um, and, and lovely to know that there's people to follow up for additional help. In the review, you've you've summarised your key management advice in a series of really fantastic tables and, and listeners have a look at those because they're really very, very valuable and, and great for future reference. We won't be able to cover all of those, but I thought we might focus on managing the autonomic features, which are particularly challenging. So, yeah, let's start off with the basics. What's your approach to blood pressure management? What's your sort of rough targets that you aim for and which drugs do you reach for first? Well, I think with blood pressure management, the first thing to say is that the main aim is to improve the side effects that patients experience from their drop in BP rather than targeting specific numbers. Now, as we all know, the kind of side effects we're talking about are things like lightheadedness or presyncopal symptoms. But one of the things that, you know, I think can be easy to miss are also things like positional postprandial fatigue, cognitive change, or things like coat hanger pain related to that drop in blood pressure. And so in our clinic, what we tend to do is try to target those symptoms rather than an absolute blood pressure. Now, if someone's blood pressure is dropping far below 90 systolic, whether or not they are symptomatic, we may still um, offer them medication. But in general, the whole idea is trying to get to those symptoms. And so with this, I would say that the first thing we always do is the non-pharmacological management, as with anything that we do in neurology. And as perhaps a short summary of what we tend to tell patients is, firstly, we'll look at their medications, look for any unnecessary medications. You'll be surprised to see how many of our patients are still on antihypertensives, even though they're fainting every other week. Look to see whether they're on any other things like opioids or diuretics, anything that we can take out, we try to remove then we tell our patients to aim for a fluid intake of about two to two and a half litres every day with increased salt use. Now, looking at papers, they will say to try to increase salt use to about 10 grams daily, but no one really actually measures how much salt they're taking. Plus, it's also a matter of taste because the quality of life isn't great for a lot of our patients. So I think in reality, what we tell patients to do is liberally salt your food to your taste. The next thing is that very often your lowest blood pressure because of the um, cortisol cycle and things like that is going to be when you first wake up in the morning. So one thing you can do is tell your patients to keep about a pint of water, maybe 500 mils by the bedside to drink when they first get up. Then try to wait around 30 minutes or so before you get up in the morning. Patients can also try to sleep with their heads um, slightly elevated at about 30 degrees because that reduces your nocturnal urine production. So you don't deplete your volume quite so much. The other thing is when they are about to get up, we talk to them about manoeuvres such as hill lifts or graduated rising, which is basically do it, do it slowly, wait in between 
lying to sitting, sitting to standing sort of thing. And then there are other sort of kind of like lifestyle changes that they might want to make. So to avoid triggers for their symptoms, such as high carbohydrate meals or hot environments. In a small group of patients, um, abdominal binders can be useful, especially after meals, but a lot of patients don't actually tolerate them. And similarly, waist-high compression stockings can also be tried, but it has to be waist-high, not just the ones that come up to your thighs. And so most people find that quite uncomfortable. In terms of medications, I think I'll first go to tends to be mitodrine because, well, it's got, uh, it's got an evidence base behind it and it's relatively short acting. So you can sort of um, time it around your symptoms and when they are worse. Um, and if titrating mitodrine is not enough, then patients can then try fludrocortisone or pyridostigmine. We don't have droxidopa in the UK, but it might be something the international listeners may have um, access to. I can't pretend that I've got very much experience with it. So, But my understanding of the literature is that we're still waiting on some of the evidence because some of the results currently are conflicting on its efficacy. But it's worth a try if we don't have anything else. I guess the last thing I would say is to think about any other symptoms that patients might have with this condition that could be treated with, with medications that we know to boost blood pressure. There's a body of medications where the evidence for them and blood pressure support doesn't support primary prescription of them for the blood pressure itself. But if they can use it for something else, then it might be worth considering. So for example, say a patient with urinary urgency and frequency Marobagron, which is a beta-3 agonist, does help with the urinary frequency and, and urgency, but it could simultaneously increase their blood pressure. And so patients with simultaneous autostatic symptoms and other symptoms could benefit from this. Um, other similar medications could include domperidone and fluoxetine and this sort of like dual prescription tactic. That's fantastic, Yen. Thank you. That's really great. Birika, I thought we might just mention Stridor because it's it's pretty scary <laughs> to us, but but I think particularly scary to, to non-neurologists when there's a patient who might be admitted to hospital for another reason. How common is Stridor and what can or do we need to do about it? Stridor varies and can be present from about 10 to 60% of all the MSA patients. And this is a typically begins at night and patients are often not aware of it themselves. But the family me uh, members will report some unusual, strange snoring. And in clinic, it is useful to actually ask for a recording of this. And mobile phones now have various apps that are quite good at um, recording a night's sleep and um they can bring you the evidence that this is indeed a uh, strider. But otherwise, um, video polysomnography can differentiate it from the other problems that can happen in MSA, such as laryngospasm and the central respiratory insufficiency that can also happen in MSA. Patients and the carers and us <laughs> are... Uh, understandably very worried about Strider. The treatment um, is usually with non-invasive ventilation and sometimes tracheostomy. But this is usually decided between the patient, the family um, and the ENT team. But before 
any treatment, we would ask for a video fluoroscopy of the epiglottis. And this is useful because with um, MSA patients up to over 70%, they can have this floppy epiglottis, which can be moved by the air pressure. And this is blocking the trachea. But there is very weak evidence for the long-term benefit of either the non-invasive ventilation or the tracheostomy. And this is important that patients and families, that they understand this, that we actually don't know what is the long-term benefit. And the main treatment is um, just for symptomatic benefit, really, because the presence of a tracheostomy or the non-invasive ventilation machine it doesn't actually prevent uh, sudden death. Okay. So I should highlight that I've skipped through genitourinary autonomic features slightly in the interest of time. But for listeners, I'd just highlight to you that there are tables, again, there are tables on all of these things and there's fantastic management points on all of them. I think one of the things that you'll review really beautifully outlines is how complex neurological conditions can be and how systemic the process is in, in MSA. And again, a a recurring theme on these podcasts, how important a a holistic and a multidisciplinary approach is. You've got a whole lot going on when you see these patients. Do you work through all these aspects with them every time or do you rely on your MDT to provide that holistic care? And Viorica, who are the most important components of that MDT? It it is very important to to get as many people involved um, and to get them early in the process, I would definitely recommend in getting somebody like the MSA specialist nurse, or if you don't have an MSA specialist nurse, then a Parkinson disease specialist nurse would be really helpful as well. And this is actually something we advise patients to get uh, in touch with locally when they, um, through their GPs, to find their Parkinson's disease nurses because they can be very helpful in advising regarding symptoms management. Other people we get involved frequently and early are the speech and language therapists, especially because we know that speech becomes affected, severely affected quite early in the disease. And there are things available for the patient such as voice banking, for example, that can be very helpful later on when speech is difficult to understand and quite uh, laborious, really. Um, so having having a speech and language therapist involved early, even f- from when the patient's speech is still unaffected, is useful, particularly for considering uh, voice banking at that stage. People from other specialties, um, such as ENT specialists we have mentioned earlier about Strider, are very helpful um, in advising us um, with management for this uh, ENT symptoms. And um, getting getting the GPs really um, to, 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 to really know about the conditions and the specifics of the conditions is very helpful. And here I'd like to mention the fact that the MSA Trust have specific information packs for GPs about MSA and about 
what GPs could do um, to help the patients, particularly in areas around prescribing antibiotics early uh, for urinary and chest infections, what other services are available to them and um, to the GPs to access. Uh, so I would try to to engage with the with the GPs quite early uh, from the from the moment when we establish this diagnosis. Um, occupational therapists would be advised to, to, to meet the patients early as their uh, needs change quite quickly and uh, the disease progresses quickly. So at the beginning, they may need to have some adaptations to the house, but the next year they would need to have complete different adaptations. So they are... It is very helpful to get them to meet the patient and the family early and to have a kind of a um, contact because this, they may need to return um, soon after. And if I could just jump in here, the MSA Trust are really, in the UK, they're really excellent. And another key person that they have is a social welfare specialist. And she can basically advise patients on funding and benefits because, I mean, I find finances stressful, never mind if you couldn't work and have high health costs. Another really useful team to maybe consider referral to is the local palliative care team. Virika sort of alluded to this, it does require careful discussion with patients because the very thought generally scares a lot of people. But in our experience, palliative care teams can really give patients that sort of extra bit of support that makes lives a little bit better because they are such experts at symptom control and have so much experience sort of helping people navigate the emotional minefield that is living with a neurodegenerative condition. And they often have access to facilities that aren't available on the NHS. So, for example, things like massage or aromatherapy, sort of like daytime classes or activities with mindfulness or meditation and things like that. And just things that cater as well to the um, physical and emotional needs of people with degenerative diseases, which some of our patients really do find very useful. Thank you. Thank you both so much. That's been a really incredible tutorial. You've, you've talked us really smoothly through diagnosis, history and examination, diagnostic criteria, and given us some fantastically useful practical pearls to, to take back to practice. I'd like to end by, by looking forwards. You've both mentioned research trials and the use of things Fiorica, you created and coordinate the, the MSA network and biobank. Where are we with disease-modifying therapies and what's on the horizon? This is actually quite an exciting time for MSA drug trials, unlike um, previous you know, 10 years. Now we have several drug trials either already recruiting or planning to start recruitment shortly. And they include a variety of um, molecules. And the good news is that they are all trying to be disease modifying. And they include medication such as antisense oligonucleotides. They include um, anti-aggregants, alpha-synuclein anti-aggregants, and immune therapy for alpha-synuclein. So they, they're all very exciting. They they are aiming to target the disease um, and not just the symptoms, but they are very important drug trials that are focusing on symptom management, such as 
severe neurogenic orthostatic hypertension that does not respond to the medication that we have currently available. And these are um, very, very optimistic times, as I say, to keep a realistic optimism um, going. And um, many, many of these trials are recruiting patients uh, in the UK. So I would suggest that uh, people get uh, the information either from the MSA Trust or from the um, official government uh, sites with clinical drug trials for MSA because they are uh, recruiting now or um, planning to open recruitment soon. And this, as Ian mentioned at the beginning, it is very important now to give patients an MSA diagnosis as early as possible and to try to not under-diagnose or delayed diagnosis um, until we are we have a lot more certainty because it may prevent some patients entering these drug trials at an early stage. And most of this trials now want patients who are at the very, very early stage of the conditions. They Most of them want patients to be able to walk independently. Well, for MSA, this basically means within the first two, three years from onset. Thank you. That's a, a really important reminder to us to, to think about uh, eligibility for trials uh, early in this in this new era of of lots of clinical trials for disease modifying therapy and and a really positive note to finish on. Thank you both so much again. Fantastic discussion, a really excellent article. Thank you everybody for listening. I, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Please listen to our other ones and and let us know how you think we can make these even better. Thanks very much. <laughs>